Hello, and welcome to show number 2405 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. The thing that I found delightful was that all the skills that we have, you know, your Braille skills, your orientation skills, all the little things are still valid and they're still really useful everywhere you go, even apparently even in space. You know, learning that spaceflight is more accessible than we think it is was kind of my takeaway. And I'm just grateful to have been there to help discover that. And as we'll learn today, maybe blind people can go up into space someday. Sherry Wells Jensen is a fully blind associate professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University. She recently spent six days with four crew members in a hermetically sealed habitat at Biosphere 2, learning about what it would be like living on Mars or the moon. We'll talk with Sherry about the experience and what was learned. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Sherry Wells Jensen. My tip is that I kind of stole this from Josh Mealy, but I believe it. Um, every tool is a cane. So everything that you are using, everything from a spoon to a screwdriver, everything is a sensing device. So um, the feedback that you get, and I, I really think I learned this, I learned this viscerally when I was in the spacesuit in the Mars yard, that uh you know, your cane is such a sensitive device and you can get so much information from it. And I think we are taught to just use your cane to get around. But boy, you can get a lot of information from it. And if you think of every other thing that you take into your hand as also a cane and a sensing device, there's just a lot of information out there that you can gain. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Sherry. My name is Sherry Wells Jensen, and I am an associate professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University. I'm also on the leadership of Astro Access, a nonprofit dedicated to finding out what we need to find out so that disabled people can take full participation in the space industries and eventually in spaceflight. But your training and academic work is all in linguistics, correct? I am a linguist. I'm a very, very lucky linguist. It was my intention uh, as a high school student to go into astronomy and physics. That was my dream. And that was quietly shunted aside. I was, you know, a young girl in rural Michigan in the 1970s. And space and physics and astronomy for a blind person was not on anybody's radar at that time. So I did not end up going into astronomy, but I still love it. Let me tell you, I was a little bit older, interested in physics and astronomy as a young girl, and that was discouraged possibly almost as much as a blind girl. So I feel your pain. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it's useful experience because now we can talk to people about what can really happen, how people really can get diverted from their dreams and from places where they could be incredibly useful and contribute a lot, it's really possible to just quietly divert people. Um, And if those people aren't paying attention and uh, they can stay diverted and that's too bad. Well, I was 
I don't know, luckier. I had a couple people who believed in me and I managed to pursue a career in physics, which was very rewarding, but, you know, all sorts of weird social interactions. I can only imagine. I mean, it's not like my years of education are wasted or not. It's not like I spend all day eating broken glass and crying. I love linguistics and I've had an amazing experience there. And now I get to do, I get to circle back around and do stuff that I've always dreamed of doing. So I'm lucky. And your career happens to be an interesting combination of linguistics and including some of the physics that you enjoyed as a youth. It's true. Uh, you know, linguistics is a really big field. We we tend to think of every, you know, discipline in the arts and sciences is basically a subfield of linguistics. You know, it's all got to do with language somehow. So we claim it all. Now, we'll be talking about your experiences combining these fields in just a bit. But what is the state of your vision? these days? I am fully blind. And have you been for some time? I've been fully blind since my youth. It's hard to search. You know, when you have a little bit of vision and it disappears slowly, it's really hard to pinpoint the exact moment. I've been there. Yeah. And so I don't really know because you also sometimes I think we, we think we see things that we don't see because we're used to seeing them. And so it was not especially dramatic. It was sort of it sort of eased up on me from behind. Eyes on Success connects corporate sponsors with visually impaired listeners around the world. More information about becoming a sponsor can be found at www.sponsor.eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Sherry Wells Jensen's experiences at Biosphere 2, learning about the issues involved in the accessibility of space travel. Well, anyway, Sherry, today we wanted to talk to you about your experiences in the Biosphere 2 facility and planning on trips to outer space and making sure some of that is accessible. But before we get to the details of that, maybe you can tell people who aren't familiar with Biosphere 2 what that facility is. It's pretty cool. It's incredibly cool. So, a little tiny bit of background. In 1998, people went into this incredibly large, complicated structure, and their idea was to seal themselves off for two years and create Biosphere 2, with the implication that Biosphere 1 is Earth, right? That's us. We're Biosphere 1. They went in and made Biosphere 2. Their idea was that they were going to create a totally self-sustaining, totally self-sufficient environment, and they were going to stay in there for two years. They had all kinds of plants and different biomes represented, and the place is enormous and labyrinthine, and there's living space, and then there's all kinds of uh, space for water and sometimes moving water and trees and plants. And we were on the campus of Biosphere 2, but in a smaller new facility called SAM, the Space Analogs for the Moon and Mars. And we were the first analog mission that went into SAM. And we were there for six days. And what was the SAM facility like? (laughs) It's sort of hard to come up with one or two sentences about it. So it was a series of sort of associated rooms. There were maybe four rooms. There were four of us in there. One was a piece of the original Biosphere 2 was their kind of their training module where they had plants. And then there was an engineering bay and a crew quarters room and then uh, down kind of a pool ladder and through a culvert that you had to crawl through a room they called the lung, which was the way that we 
managed the air pressure in the unit because the whole thing was sealed. So we had, we were sealed it, we had airlocks, we had one airlock, and there we were in that little kind of complicated series of four interconnected rooms that uh, it, one of them you had to go down the ladder to get to, another one you had to go up a ladder over a little bridge and down uh, into the uh, into the engineering bay. So it was quite intricate. Now, in general, such a facility is set up so people can train for long missions out in space in a contained environment, and how do they interact, and how do they work with the facility. But you were there for a special reason, I guess, being blind. Right. Our missions were called Inclusion 1 and Inclusion 2, uh, the mission after me. I was in Inclusion 1, the next one, uh, which contained uh, another blind person, Andy Squires, who was a swell, amazing, awesome human being. So there was a blind person in each of these missions. And the point was just to show, uh, in my case, what the accessibility of the facility was like. And then we also had a mix of, of men and women, a mix of different kinds of um, professionals. And um, the point beyond testing the accessibility of the facility was like all analog missions to do a little bit of science and to do some sort of social observations about how we got along and how we managed, given that we're all very different people, how we managed to get our work done um, and we each had a uh, an EVA also. So we put on a spacesuit, went out to the Mars yard and walked around in, our, in the spacesuit for, I think, maybe half hour each. Seemed like a year, but maybe it was only about a half hour. You mentioned getting your work done. What kind of assignments did you have during this six-day period? Oh, we had so many things. We were busy all the time. Um, well, first off, just for the record, there were lots of reports because every <laughs> every science facility has to have lots of writing of reports, right? Just, uh, but thanks to independent science, I had some accessible air and water sensors that I could use. And part of my job was to test the water quality of sort of both the water tank before we used the water and then what was the pH and the conductivity of the water after we used it. So that was part of my job. And then I was also there to document accessibility of all of the subsystems within the habitat. Those were our main focuses. And were the other people incipient astronauts? One of our number was an astronaut candidate at one point, our medical officer. And we had a commander who had been on missions before. And then we had an engineer who uh, was with Blue Origin. I'm impressed that they actually thought about including blind people in such a test like this. I mean, you would you would think they'd have other things they were thinking about. So it's kind of impressive and surprising. For sure. I mean, everyone has always other things they're thinking about, right? Including people with disabilities is never on the top of any radar. Um, but I mean, I think maybe that's changing a little bit as as we work toward oh, I don't know, not to sound grandiose or anything, but as we work toward a world where inclusion matters, um, I think maybe uh, we're not as forgotten as before. And that's due to the good work of lots and lots of activists and thinkers and scholars and ordinary people just being out there in the world and doing what they're good at doing and changing attitudes slowly, slowly, slowly. 
So what was your experience as a blind person? Initially, when you were talking about this smaller facility, I'm thinking that's kind of an advantage for a blind person. You know, if the facility is a little bit smaller, it's a little bit easier to understand where you are and get around. I would have a hard time thinking about wandering around in the main biosphere facility, which is huge and open and, you know, no navigation points. What was your experience like? Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> so I, I asked for and was granted an opportunity to go in a day early and just sort of poke around and, you know, label some ideas. I go and label some things and kind of get a map of the facility in my head. And we entered into the oldest room, which is a historical room that was part of the Biosphere 2 original experiment. And I went in there and it had kind of a sheet metal floor. And you know how when you step on sheet metal, it kind of goes bump down sometimes? You know. Oh, yes. Yes. That can be disconcerting, right? And it was really, it's a very tall, this module is really tall and skinny and it's all glass and metal. So it was really, really echoey. And there were also a bunch of air conditioning units because we're in the desert in Arizona, right? So it's hot, 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 hot outside. So there's all these air conditioning units. And I walked into this thing and it was all echoey and the metal floor was going bong, bong. And I was walking around there. I think, oh, somebody save me. This is going to be a nightmare. I could not imagine from those first few moments. I thought I'm not going to have to like be in a sleeping bag on the floor in this place because it was an acoustic horror to me. And so my first instinct was, what in the name of all that is good have I gotten myself into? And then I explored around the habitat and went into some of the other rooms and the other rooms were not that intensely acoustically hostile. <laughs> they sounded like ordinary rooms. And so I was really grateful. So physically getting around was not a problem because it was a smaller facility and moving from room to room, there was a step or two to get into each room um, each room sort of sounded different because it was a different size with different amounts of stuff in there. So orientation-wise, I felt like it was pretty easy. Could you use your cane in the facility? I could, you know, and I did for the first couple of days. I brought in, I wasn't sure what I would need. So, in, you know, it, like you do, I brought in my straight cane, which is my cane of choice. And then I brought in a folding cane. Uh, so I could have it in my pocket moving around. And I found that just like you are in, you're in a new house, I used my cane for the first maybe 24 hours just to be sure that I knew what I was doing and where everything was. And then it basically ended up just leaning in the kitchen unit, uh, leaning in a corner. And I had my folding cane in my pocket for the next couple of days. And then it, everything was just pretty clear. And I just stopped carrying a cane just like you do in your house. So you were in Arizona, which has a normal amount of gravity. But if you were in space, your cane would have functioned very differently in the absence of gravity. Has NASA given any thought to blind people navigating in space? It's a really good question. So Astro Access, um, and I'm, and that I'm privileged to be a part of, has done a few of these zero-G parabolic flights. You know, the thing they call the Vomit Comet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My worst nightmare. I don't even like elevators. You know, I don't like roller coasters. I don't like anything loud. I'm kind of a big chicken, to be honest. But the parabolic flight was maybe the most fun that I've ever had in my entire life. Just that feeling of being suspended and floating. And it was wicked loud, not going to lie. That part, I'm not a fan of. Um, 
But I found that as a blind person, as long as you have acoustic cues, you can navigate, right? And the cool thing about being in zero gravity is your hands can go everywhere. You're not limited by your reach. If there's a thing that you want to explore tactically, you can just flip yourself upside down and hang in the air over it and your hands can go anywhere, anywhere, right? And it's so easy to move your body around. You have access to every part of an object that you want to explore with your hands. And that I still I still have dreams about how how efficient that felt and how much fun it was. Yeah, gravity isn't that much fun. I mean, it's good for sledding, I suppose, but <laughs> if, if you can opt out, you might as well. I mean, it was it was really disorienting, um, partly because the, the airplane was really, really loud. But I think that you would really need some good acoustic cues to navigate well. But you can sort yourself out just like you ordinarily do. It's just a little more complicated. You talked about running around outside in a spacesuit, I think. And I was wondering how that worked with a cane and the acoustic cues and things like that. That's a really good question. You know, there are people with really good deafblind skills. I am not that person. I thought that I would be terrified. And there was a moment when I felt a little bit like in the Star Wars movie when they put the helmet down over Darth Vader's head. That's kind of how I felt when the guys were suiting me up and they're like, we're going to put your helmet on now. And I, part of me was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do this. Um, but I, I was too, I was too proud to back out. And again, those of folks who are used to navigating this way, um, I should have talked to some people in advance and they would have calmed me down. But sound is vibration, right? And you can feel vibrations. So with the helmet on, I had no auditory contact with the outside world, but I could still feel vibrations. And I had my cane with me. I had it tethered to my hand in case I dropped it because I didn't want to have to search around for it in the Mars yard with the rocks and dirt. And gloves on your hand from the spacesuit. Yes, gloves on my hands, great big boots. But I could still tell us, so I stepped out onto the porch of the facility in the spacesuit, and I could tell that one of the guys who had just suited me up was also on the steps because I could feel the steps vibrating through my feet, right? So you still had that sense of where you are in the world because there's a little bit of gravity. There's still gravity, right? Um, and I could feel people walking up and down the steps, so I knew if someone was on the steps with me. And then I had kind of gotten oriented to the Mars yard before I went, so I knew where things were. And my cane worked great. And it was funny because you I could, you could tell the texture. I could tell the texture of the difference between the cement of the area around the yard and then the wood that uh, there was a, there was like, it's like a sand pile, right? There's a wooden barrier around it. You could feel the difference in the way your cane taps on cement and on wood and on sand. And so I was really amazed and delighted to find that I could go uh, as long as I kept my brains about me and stayed calm, I could walk over to the Mars yard, step in across the little barrier into the sand. I had a scoop with me and, and some and some containers, and I was able to scoop up a soil sample and find a rock and scoop that up. And then I was able to walk around uh, and stay oriented and just use my cane the, or, the way you ordinarily would. Although they tell me that I was really whacking pretty hard with my cane. It sounded apparently from the outside like I was beating the snot out of everything with my cane. Um, probably not necessary, but I wanted to hit things hard <laughs> so I could get maximum feedback. Even to get the amount of feedback that you're used to in that spacesuit, it must have been, you know, everything was 
muffled in a sense, the sound from the cane, the feeling in your hand from the cane, that you would have had to hit things really hard in order to get a normal amount of feedback. I think so. I mean, I could not hear the cane hitting. It was all about the vibration. Interestingly, I I remember hearing it, but I know I didn't. The vibration translated into the right sound in my head, but I know that I could not hear. People were talking and carrying on around me. I didn't hear anything from inside the suit. But I imagined when my cane hit the thing, I thought, oh, that sounds like wood. I remember thinking that. And then I remember thinking, it doesn't sound like wood, dummy. It feels like wood because you can't hear that. It's interesting how your brain fills in some of those things. And you referred to, you know, filling in even some sight with things you can't see. And I've certainly had that experience lots that I imagine I see stuff that I know my eyes can't see. You know, we think of senses as isolated sort of channels of information, but they're overlapping, right? We know that. And anyone with a little bit of synesthesia, if if you're one of those people that has, you know, uh, if you have colors when you think of letters, which about a third of people have, as I understand it, our sensory inputs do bleed over into one another. Did you have any incidents or accidents or surprises in the facility in this test, being that you were blind? You know, I was being very, very cautious because we're the first people in there and I didn't uh, I didn't want to wreck anything. <laughs> um, so when I say cautious, I mean, like if I were going to do a thing, I would approach it slowly. I would think about it and then figure out what I needed to do before committing. And I think the thing that struck me most was that a space habitat in the end is just a room. I mean, it's a room in space and it's a really complicated room and there's lots of equipment in the room, but we already know how to make rooms accessible. That's a thing that we already know. And so we know how to make space habitats accessible. And I used everything from these very high-tech talking sensors that we got from independent science to take carbon dioxide readings in the air. That's super high-tech stuff, right? To you know, I had a slate and stylus and some scotch tape and some paper, and I put labels on things and lots of bump dots. That place is lousy with bump dots right now. It's bump dots everywhere in there. Um, the thing that I found delightful was that all the skills that we have, you know, your Braille skills, your orientation skills, all the little things are still valid and they're still really useful everywhere you go, even apparently even in space. So you mentioned an organization called Astro Access. Can you talk about that and its role in your experiences and involvement in this experiment? Absolutely. So I am on on the Flight Operations Committee and on the leadership of Astro Access. And it's a nonprofit founded by Anna Volker and George Whitesides. And the idea of the organization is to initially, let's find out The information that we need to get disabled people into space, we all know that one of the big barriers is people's attitudes, right? So that's a thing. That's difficult. We're going to have to keep working on that. We all know about that. But when it comes to outer space, there's just stuff we don't know. Uh, For example, we talked about your white cane and zero gravity and kind of that is a liability, right? If you have a big cane sticking out, other people moving around, it's just not the same kind of useful tool. But we wouldn't know that until we tried it, right? So on the zero-G flights, we tried things like that. Um, We have to figure out how a blind person is going to stay oriented. We talked about that before. In zero gravity, what kind of extra signage might be useful? What kind of tactile indicators? For example, where's the exit? Where's the oxygen? All that kind of stuff. 
And so Astraxis is dedicated to doing that kind of research and doing that kind of design and development work. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a wheelchair user and you have lower limb paralysis, what do you do with your lower limbs in zero gravity? Should you rope them, sort of sort of tether them together so they become one unit? Do you want to wear some kind of brace so they don't spin on you, so you don't set up, you know, an unintentional spin? So what what are the best ways of doing things? We don't know yet. And so that's the other barrier that we face if we're going to go to space. We have an we have an attitude barrier and we have a knowledge lack. And so we're working on all that stuff at the same time. And I'm wondering what the result was of your participation in this study. Did you give them specific feedback on how to make things more accessible or the environment more pleasant for a person like yourself? Or were they just observing and taking notes? Oh, yes. There was a mighty, mighty, mighty list. <laughs> Everything from um, this bread maker, we made bread every day. We loved our bread maker. We put all kinds of random stuff in the bread. So it was more fun. We made chocolate bread. We made lemon bread. We made every kind of bread <laughs> using everything we could imagine. It was great, but the bread maker was not accessible. So I could load it up, but then I had to call one of my buddies over to make sure it was starting properly. So things like don't, those appliances aren't a good idea. For example, we need a different bread maker. We need a different microwave. And then there were some, there were some training things, right? Can we please have, for example, a tactile map of the facility for people? Um, there was social stuff. So we could shout from one end of the habitat to another. And sometimes my crewmates would call somebody else to go get something when I was sitting right next to it. And so we had to talk about those kinds of interactions. Like, yes, you can trust me. Yes, you have to trust me. I'm part of the, a part of the crew. Um, really smart, open-minded, good people who become some of my dearest friends. And they still had kind of the cultural idea about disabled people and blind people. Like, where, who are you going to call when you need help? Well, you know, you should call the nearest person, not the nearest non-blind person, not the nearest sighted person. So we had all kinds of things, everything, everything from that's labeled as canister of rice to um, let's think about how we interact. Well, what a great experience. Sounds like a lot of fun and a very worthwhile endeavor for everyone to learn something. It was a lot. You know, we were really, really, really glad to rejoin the human race after only six days. It felt like a long time to be totally isolated. We had email back and forth, but that was that was all we had with the outside world. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Astro Access, how to contact them, and how to contact Sherry Wells Jensen. Well, Sherry, if people had questions for you or they want to learn more about you, how can they do that? So um, I am I'm always happy to, to get emails from folks. My email is swellsja, S-W-E-L-L-S-J, at bgsu.edu for Bowling Green State University.edu. Um, I have a website, sherrywellsjensen.com. Um, and I'm, I'd be delighted to, to talk with anyone, um, especially young folks thinking about careers in STEM. Can you provide contact information for the Astro Access organization? Yes, it's astroaccess.org. A-S-T-R-O-A-C-C-E-S-S.org. Do they have email or telephone or anything that people could query them? 
you can always do info at estheraccess.org and one of us on the leadership team will get it. Do you or they have a social media presence? Yes, they do. I also have an email address there, come to think of it, Sherry, S-H-E-R-I, at astroaccess.org. And yes, Astro Access is on Facebook and uh, whatever that thing is now that used to be Twitter. And uh, I think we have an Instagram. I'm not sure. If you missed any of that information, you can find it in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 2405 at www.iasonsuccess.net. That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll continue the conversation with Sherry Wells Jensen. As a youth, she wanted to be a scientist. Unfortunately, being blind as well as female, she was discouraged from pursuing such a career by those around her. We'll talk with Sherry, now an associate professor of linguistics, about her journey and how she was able to merge science into her career. So thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.